0: The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Rev. Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church, where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walking.
1: Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 1 through 8. As Jesus came out of the temple and was going away, his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Then he asked them, Do you see all these, do you not? Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will this be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered them, All this is but the beginning of earth pangs. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation.
2: This past January, I spent a week at Emory University in a concentrated course for my Doctor of Ministry program taught by the Reverend Dr. Tom Long, who is a renowned preaching professor, almost all seminaries use at least one of his books to teach intro and advanced preaching courses. He is held in such high esteem that he was asked to give the eulogy for Fred Craddock, the father of narrative preaching. So Dr. Long is kind of a big deal. But on the second day of class, he made an announcement that had our whole class give a collective groan The next morning, each of us would be expected to give a five-minute sermon on eschatology. There are 14 of us, so 14 sermons back to back to back to back, you get the point. Our outlook was grim. First of all, eschatology sounds like a cross between religious academic snobbery and a sneeze. Second, five minutes to preachers really means five minutes. In other words, I'll be brief for as long as it takes. I mean, Jesus, take the wheel. But you already know the rest of this story because The exercise was powerful enough to inspire a sermon series. I had thought there were really only a couple of ways to preach and teach eschatology, but it turns out there are at least 14. (laughs) More than that, it was a reminder of why eschatology matters. But before we get there, a few housekeeping matters. Eschatology. Even when we don't use that $5 word, we kind of know where it's headed. It's usually associated with the afterlife, heaven, hell, purgatory, and this is in part because Christians are almost singularly obsessed with what happens to us after death. We not so secretly hope that we'll really go on forever. We want happy reunions with the people we love, And we really want to know that there's going to be a place to put all our stuff. But the Bible doesn't really support such a notion, at least not as developed by Christianity over the centuries. And since Jesus was Jewish, he certainly didn't think of the afterlife that way either. Eschatology is a much broader topic than just life after death for the individual. Eschatology is the study of last things, most usually focused on the specific events that are supposed to happen at the literal end of time. Thanks to theologies and ideologies like those found in novels like the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye, many people most strongly associate the study of the end times with words like dispensationalism, premillennialism, second coming, tribulation, and rapture. That series has sold more than 60 million copies since publishing began in the mid-1990s. All 12 in the original series have been New York Times bestsellers. Although, as biblical scholar Marcus Borg notes, they are bestsellers on the fiction list, praise the Lord. The series purports to be prophetic writing based on the Book of Revelation, which is really a letter to seven churches written by an imprisoned preacher. I imagine more than a handful of you assumed the scripture lesson today would be a reading from the Book of Revelation, and it was a reasonable assumption. It is one of the most popular sources of end-time prophecy, even if interpretations of it ignore social and historical context and pervert the gospel. The Left Behind series and other writings like it imagines that believers will be raptured into heaven and those who manage to repent turn into a tribulation force that battles the Antichrist until the final battle of Armageddon when the Son of Man returns to earth and destroys the armies of the Antichrist and the final judgment occurs. In this scenario, Jesus is not only an omnipotent warrior but also condemns most people to eternal suffering in hell. If this description of everybody's favorite heretical community organizer from Nazareth sounds off, it means you actually read your Bible. But it turns out a lot of Christians do not read their Bibles, even those who adhere to literal interpretation. And it shows, but not just in end-of-times fiction. Senator John Neely Kennedy, a Republican congressman from Louisiana, recently cited imagery from the Book of Revelation to describe four congresswomen popularly known as the Squad. Senator Kennedy said, the simple fact of the matter is the four congresswomen think that America was wicked in its origins. They think that America and its people are even more wicked now, that we are all racist and misogynistic and evil. They're entitled to their opinion. They're Americans. But I'm entitled to my opinion, and I think they're left-wing cracks, and they're the reason there are directions on a shampoo bottle. I think we should ignore them. I'm appalled that so many of our presidential candidates are falling all over themselves to try to agree with the four horsewomen of the apocalypse. Like most people who quote from Revelation, the congressman almost gets it right. He's trying to insult the women, but the four horsemen of the Apocalypse, as described in the sixth chapter of Revelation, bring righteous justice, not hell, in the final battle between good and evil on earth. And while they are conquest, war, famine, and death, they are said to be put on earth, By God to bring about a just cleansing of evil on earth. So, in other words, the senator actually describes those four congresswomen as righteous and terrifying warriors of God. (laughs) Okay. Because this particular sermon is a crash course in eschatology, we have to pull back a bit from Revelation, put it in context. And we can do this in part by looking at the text from Matthew, in which the disciples ask Jesus the question the Left Behind series tries to answer, but a question also asked by many of us. What will the sign of the end of the age be? Or in our vernacular, it's a circus down here. How is this all going to work out? Jesus' teaching in the last chapters of Matthew are often referred to as the apocalyptic discourse. The adjective apocalyptic, derived from the Greek word verb apocalypto, meaning reveal or disclose, is used by scholars of a genre of Jewish literature that flourished several hundred years before the birth of Jesus. These apocalypses, of which only two made it into the biblical canon, Daniel and Revelation, are often read as if they are disclosing divine secrets concerning God's plan for the final judgment. But biblical scholars remind us again and again and again that apocalyptic writings are carefully crafted literary compositions. As John Dominic Crossan reminds us, It is not that ancient people told literal stories and we are now smart enough to take them symbolically, but that they told them symbolically and we are now dumb enough to take them literally. (laughs) Apocalyptic writings are political and theological in nature, rooted in scripture and tradition, and were meant to cause real change in daily living. What is clear is that these authors wanted to encourage believers to remain faithful in difficult times. They did so by dramatizing the hope that God will indeed redeem God's people. Despite its brevity, the apocalyptic discourse in Matthew fulfills that same function. In Matthew, we hear the observation of the disciples about the impressiveness of the temple buildings. The complex on the Temple Mount, the result of Herod the Great's ambitious building program, was justly regarded as one of the most famous of the ancient world. Like the prophet Jeremiah, though, Jesus predicts its total destruction. Jesus reminds the disciples that as long as we try to achieve peace through war, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And although it speaks of a series of future events climaxing in the arrival of the Son of Man in glory, its emphasis is on exhortation to faithfulness, not on the disclosure of heavenly secrets. Okay, so if most of us in this sanctuary don't buy into the Battle of Armageddon um, as a literal war or the rapture with all its bells and whistles, then why, why talk about eschatology at all? I mean, we could just let the fundamentalists have it. But this we cannot do, and we already know why. The prevailing eschatology that has humankind headed towards the Battle of Armageddon is already killing people. We saw it last weekend. Patrick Crucius drove to El Paso, Texas, to kill Mexicans with an AK 47 style rifle a manifesto he posted online stated that he wanted to stop the, quote, Hispanic invasion of Texas. White nationalist terrorism is following a progression eerily similar to that of jihadism under the leadership of the Islamic State in ways that do much to explain why the attacks have suddenly grown so frequent and deadly. In both, there is apocalyptic ideology that predicts and promises to hasten a civilization conflict that will end the world. There is theatrical, indiscriminate violence that will supposedly bring about this final battle, even if it often does little more than grant the killer a brief flash of empowerment and win attention for the cause. The ideological tracks, recruiting pitches, and radicalization tales of the Islamic State during its rise Echo almost word for word those of the white nationalist terrorists of today. For the latter, the world is said to be careening towards a global race war between whites and non whites. The Camp of the Saints, a bizarre 1973 French novel that has since become an unofficial book of prophecy for many white nationalists, describes a concerted effort by non-white foreigners to overwhelm and subjugate Europeans who fight back in a genocidal race war. So-called manifestos left by the terrorist attackers at Christchurch, New Zealand and El Paso have warned of this coming war, too. They also say their attacks were intended to provoke more racial violence, hastening the fight's arrival. This is what is at stake. So, no. It is not okay for us to simply dismiss apocalyptic predictions of the end times as sideshows outside the big tent of Christianity that only attract a few ignorant and gullible people but don't do any real harm. John Dominic Crossan notes, The Jesus who preached the Sermon on the Mount preferred loving enemies and praying for persecutors, while the Jesus of the book of Revelation preferred killing enemies and slaughtering persecutors. It is not that Jesus changed his mind, but that Christianity changed its Jesus. If the prevailing narrative about the end times encourages death and destruction instead of abundant life, then we are doing it wrong. We need more thoughtful and more faithful interpretations of the direction we're headed, taking seriously the warnings of prophet after prophet, including Jesus, that violence begets violence. And if we want a different ending, we must rewrite it using justice, mercy, and humility, or to translate it into a catch-all word, love. So it is that we understand eschatology as an orientation, a way of living that trusts God to be God, believes that all things will be made right, and empowers us to live like it. We've got two more weeks of talking broadly about the end times, but in the in-between time, You've got a homework assignment. I want you to seek out theologies of liberation from people of color. They almost always offer a more inspiring and hopeful vision of the future, perhaps because such communities, in the face of so much racism and colonialism, have a history of making a way out of no way and creating and sustaining life despite the best efforts of the dominating powers that be. This is how we begin to reclaim the narrative in the hopes that we can move away from a culture of death into the promise of life abundant for all people. The last line of our final hymn says... As Christ died to make us holy, let us die to make all free. I love those words, but perhaps Fannie Lou Hamer, a woman of color and one of the most powerful voices in the civil rights movement, said it better. Nobody's free until everybody's free. By nature, the first sermon in a sermon series doesn't really have a conclusion, can't really tie a nice little bow on it, but here's my suggestion for how we begin to approach eschatology. We rest in the sure and certain hope that in the end, love will see us through. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Rev. Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at MayflowerUCC.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.